Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode three of On the River of History. I'm your host, Joan Termel, historian in residence. Geologists are very much historians in their own right, and those that primarily focus their careers on the Earth's past are known as historical geologists. Over 200 years of careful analysis on rock formations and mineral deposits throughout the world have been done by these researchers, and all of that has come together into a grand schematic chart called the geologic time scale. In principle, the chart groups smaller units of time into successively larger categories, based on the composition, dating, and relatedness of rock layers. Remember our discussion on relative and absolute dating? That applies heavily here. Geologists recognize that among any group of layers in a rock formation, those at the bottom are the oldest, while those at the top are the youngest, the law of superposition. Due to the complicated movement of the Earth's crust, some of the layers are inevitably missing or are distorted but they can be compared to other layers in different parts of the world. In doing so, similarities are found, and it becomes clear that the two rock formations relate to the same geologic events of the past. All of these phenomena were recorded and used to assemble the geologic time scale. In short, the largest groupings are called eons, which contain multiple eras, which are composed of periods, which are made up of epochs, who are themselves assembled by ages. And all of these categories are given Greek and Latin names, this system of boxes within boxes is roughly similar to the process of language classification we discussed earlier. These increasingly smaller units help geologists and other researchers of Earth history make sense of the system of layers and fossil records throughout the planet and make it easier to talk about the events of the past with laypeople, as well as colleagues. For example, in the last episode, I laid out the entire history of the early Earth, from its formation to the establishment of plate tectonics. Most of this activity occurred during the Hadean Eon, which is the proposed name for the earliest eon in Earth's history. It's a controversial name, however, because by definition the Hadean covers the time before the first rocks and rock formations developed, so there are no rocks on Earth's surface that date back to the Hadean. As I've mentioned in the last episode, we know about this period of time from analysis of meteorites and other observations, so that doesn't mean there's no evidence of the time during the Hadean eon. It's sort of like giving a name to the time before your conception. The Hadean thus begins with the formation of the Earth about 4.56 billion years ago, and ends with the first rocks, which were in place around 4.03 billion years ago. And that marks the beginning of the next eon, the Archean. This eon lasts until 2.5 billion years ago, and will encompass the events discussed in the first half of this episode. Among the most prevalent scientific mysteries of our time regards the origin of life. We simply do not have a definitive answer to the question of how life arose on Earth. However, just like the enigmas about the formation of the solar system and its worlds, scientists have decades of observation and experiment that have allowed them to get closer and closer to a possible answer. Paleontologist Richard Forte once wrote, The search for the secret of this transformation is still far from complete, and rendering its myriad steps comprehensible is like trying to summarize what is known of human anatomy on a postcard. The shape might be broadly correct, but the detail is inevitably approximate. Twenty-two years have passed since he wrote those words, and though much more is known than ever before, this secret still remains incomplete. And yet, braced with this new knowledge, I can attempt to not just summarize, but help you all understand the origin of life as well. The first question that has to be asked is, what life is? At an elementary level, this is an obvious question. A spoon or a chair isn't alive, but your dog or your cat is alive. There is a philosophical angle as well, where life is defined in metaphysical or moral terms. But for biologists, those who study living things, the question is much more loaded and precise. To ask, what is life, 
is to ask what defining features make biological organisms distinct from non-living matter. At first, you might be tempted to list a series of traits that are shared by all organisms, as many high school or college textbooks do. Living things can grow and adapt to their environments, they can reproduce and so forth. But these criteria do not actually apply to all living organisms, and on the whole, they're relatively useless when you're trying to understand the origin of life. First and foremost, all biological organisms are composed of one or more cells. The cell is a collection of microscopic structures that, when combined, can sustain itself and distinguish itself from the surrounding environment. They are the foundations of all life. All cells have metabolism, wherein they maintain a series of chemical reactions that keep the cell from dying, and all cells can replicate or make copies of themselves. There is chemistry at work here, and that's what biologists pay attention to. The Archaean Earth was home to oceans and rocks full of chemical elements and compounds, including hydrogen, carbon, sulfur, oxygen, and nitrogen. The most important of all these was carbon, well known among scientists as the foundation of not just biology, but chemistry, because of its ability to combine with other elements to create new molecules. For example, carbon, mixed with hydrogen, produces methane gas. Methane, along with other molecules created by a fusion of carbon atoms, are known as organic molecules, and they can come in an array of different structures, including molecular chains and rings. It is the ability of carbon to create organic molecules that has allowed living things to be as they are. All life on Earth is carbon-based, and it stands to reason that carbon atoms played a vital role in the origin of life itself. In order for carbon atoms to bond with other elements and create organic molecules, there has to be an ample energy source, otherwise atoms can't react with each other and form larger structures. Surprisingly, organic molecules are relatively easy to make, and experiments have shown that they can be produced in energy-rich environments as disparate as superheated volcanic vents and clay deposits. On the early Earth, these regions were plentiful. Studies have even shown that comets contain heavy elements of organic molecules, so impacts could have brought them to Earth too. So it seems that organic molecules, the rudimentary building blocks of life, are present very early on in the Earth's history. The next step would have been the combining of organic molecules to form the more specific foundations of life. Amino acids, nucleotides, phosphates, sugars, and lipids. Amino acids are what make up proteins, complex organic molecules that serve as catalysts for chemical reactions that keep organisms alive, among a host of other functions. Nucleotides and phosphates, combined with sugars, form the structure of DNA and RNA, the complex molecules that make reproduction possible for living things. Lipids, like amino acids, have a variety of functions. Of importance to us here is their ability to form membranous structures. Again, experiments have shown that these complex organic molecules can form under particular conditions, primarily those with a high rate of energy production. From the earliest tests to current studies, we recognize that intense ultraviolet radiation, available to the early Earth due to a lack of an ozone layer, lightning flashes, and heat produced from volcanic surfaces can create amino acids, lipids, and other key structures of life. Amino acids and phosphate molecules have also been found in comets. Now here's where things get tricky for scientists interested in the origin of life. As of the release of this episode, we still lack a definitive clue to the process that started with complex organic molecules and ended with living cells that could metabolize and reproduce. In all the experiments conducted by geologists, chemists, and biologists, no one has ever made new life in the laboratory. These dedicated individuals have thus had to rely on observations and theory to give ideas to how this change could have occurred. One key observation is the role that carbon plays in living things. For cells to function, 
they need a constant stream of new carbon atoms flowing through them, otherwise the cell's resources are quickly used up and the structure dies. This river of carbon makes it possible for cells to grow and replicate, and to keep themselves alive. To really provide the push for their functions, cells also require ATP. ATP, or adenosine triphosphate, is an organic molecule that organizes the processes of chemical reactions required for metabolism. In essence, carbon atoms are the workers, and ATP are the supervisors. The precursors of cells would have needed an environment that continuously provided carbon atoms and ATP molecules, but we're still a long way from proper cells. The development of proteins is another matter. Proteins are essentially chains of amino acids, but in cells, DNA is required to make new proteins because they house all the instructions for the process. Researchers understand that, on their own, amino acids do not link together and form proteins, but it is possible that in the right conditions this could occur. Experiments conducted with clay minerals show that when enough energy is added, amino acids stick to the atoms of the minerals and organize themselves in such a manner as to create very long chains of organic molecules. Similar to proteins, but not proteins. Nonetheless, that is some amazing progress in this area of study. I have mentioned DNA a few times before but RNA might be new to some of you. Ribonucleic acid is a single-stranded molecule, unlike DNA, which is double-stranded. RNA is unique, however, in that it can perform the functions of both DNA and proteins. That is, they can create chemical reactions and hold genetic information. Given its fluid abilities, many researchers have turned to RNA to provide clues to the origin of life. If the conditions were right, with a plentiful supply of carbon atoms and the right amount of energy, it's possible that RNA molecules could have developed from nucleotides, phosphates, and sugars. In 2016, a series of experiments led by chemist Gerald Joyce and postdoctoral assistant David Horning led to the development of an RNA polymerase ribozyme, a type of RNA molecule, that was not only able to make copies of other RNA molecules, both simple and complex, but had the ability to make continuous duplicates of those RNA molecules already copied, resulting in a form of population growth. This research is tantalizing, but much work still needs to be done. In any case, these experiments lend credence to the hypothesis developed by many researchers that RNA played a key role in the development of the first living organisms, which could have exchanged genetic information via ribonucleic acid. Cells distinguish themselves from their environment because they're enclosed in a membrane composed of phospholipids. These molecules develop from a synthesis of phosphate molecules and lipids called fatty acids. Phospholipids are made up of two key parts a phosphate head, and a fatty acid double tail. The atoms that make up the head are hydrophilic. They interact positively with water molecules, while the tails are hydrophobic. They interact negatively with water molecules. At the right conditions, phospholipids will combine with each other and form structures like bubbles, with the top layer of hydrophilic heads facing outwards and their hydrophobic tails pointing inwards, connected to another layer of phospholipids, this time facing the opposite direction. Now there's a bilayer of hydrophobic tails keeping the water outside from mixing with the water inside. If left to their own devices, phospholipid bubbles will grow as new lipid molecules are introduced, and eventually the vesicle will be too big to hold its own weight. At some point then, the bubble shrinks down the middle and forms a sort of hourglass shape, eventually splitting into two bubbles. Thus, the phospholipid vesicle has replicated into two vesicles. This is similar to how cells divide themselves and it is possible that the earliest cells may have increased their number through this process. We usually think nothing about going to the bathroom, but waste removal is one of the most important things organisms can do. 
For cells, if there is too much buildup of waste particles generated by proteins and other catalysts, the cell overfills and can no longer function properly. It ruptures and dies. In order to combat this problem, cells have what's called physical channeling. The phospholipid membrane, for example, has just the right size and amount of openings to allow certain substances to come in and come out. There are also special proteins embedded within the membrane that let specific molecules through. In general, there's a system at work that ensures that only the appropriate substances can enter the cell and prevents the buildup of waste. Having listed all these observations and experiments, what sort of environment could have allowed all these processes to form? Scientists have given all sorts of options. Primordial soup was indeed a real suggestion, nothing more than a vast expanse of organic molecules that, when provided with the appropriate energy, coalesce together and form the first cells. Other ideas include the wildly exciting panspermia hypothesis, that organic molecules, perhaps already formed into living things, arrived on Earth via comets and other interplanetary bodies. That is, life originated somewhere in space and seeded the planet. Sounds like science fiction? Certainly. But remember that we have plenty of evidence that organic molecules are abundant in space. So those who have proposed panspermia are coming from a place of genuine seriousness. To continue this episode, please go to part two.